more than 40% of all energy in North America is used to operate buildings like your home and the office that you're in. So if you were to improve the efficiency of how you operate your home or your office by, say, 10%, you would do more than taking all SUVs off the road. Coming up, Ariane talks with Zero Footprint founder Ron Denbo, next on Change Nation from the first 30 days. Ron is here for a special Earth Day edition of Change Nation to talk about how you can go green and save the environment. Ron, it's a pleasure to welcome you to the show. It's a pleasure to be here, Ariane. Ron, what is the good news about the environment? What is positive? What is great that's going on? What are things that we probably don't hear enough about? I think the best news is that the level of awareness of the environmental issues has really changed dramatically over the last year or so and that people are actually doing things that are uh, both profitable and have big impact. So a lot has started. You know, you can actually see how people will mobilize. So you're seeing the beginning of that. That's what's so exciting. Ron, are you seeing the beginning more at a grassroots level, or are you seeing it in businesses and in consumer areas? You know, it's, it's happening almost in three layers. Certain governments are really getting it and really really doing stuff uh, that's quite amazing. The business community has taken this on as an extensive way. And uh, there's a lot of grassroots. I'd say when I say certain governments, I wouldn't include our government, for example, you know, and perhaps the U.S. as well. It's just simply grassroots is taking off, I'd say, mainly because of the lack of government action in, in our country. What governments do you think do merit some credit and some acknowledgement? Uh, I think the UK, uh, a lot of Europe, a lot of what's happening in Spain, in Germany, Norway, Sweden. I'd say the one that actually merits the most interest is Sweden because they've been at this for a long time and they've created quite a culture of green. To give you a pretty quick uh, summary, uh, an average Swede has one-third the footprint of an average American and yet they live as well or better. They've, they've really managed to cut their carbon dramatically. So how bad is it really? And why is it that so many of us are not taking this more seriously at, at a consumer and individual level? You know, it, uh, there's a real disconnect. If, you, uh, if you're living in North America the way we live, uh, I'm sitting in a wonderful room now, the lights work, uh, perfectly heated. Um, my computer's working, the electricity's constant. Uh, so are you trying to tell me that the world's going under? It's really very hard to connect what you're experiencing now with what's actually happening. So this huge time lag between observing, you know, um, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere at too high a concentration and its effect, uh, that, that time lag is huge. And uh, it's huge in our scale. It's not huge for the world, uh, on a world scale. So that's a, that's a very big challenge, I think. Um, you know, it's how can, you, how can I honestly believe I just came back from a great lunch, you know, the, I can just walk anywhere in Toronto and buy a million things. And, and it's, life is easy and good. Now, I, I think that's true for a lot of the world, a lot of the you know, developed world. So it's very hard. You have a disconnect. And um, you can't connect the fact that this little 
action that you're going to take when you change your light bulb or switch off your screensaver is really going to make a difference. It doesn't seem to make a difference. What do you think is the uh, most important myth that we're either being fed or that we're still buying into that people need to really hear and that we all need to take on more seriously? I think it's a context-dependent question. You know, if, if you were in Europe, there would be a different myth than here. But there's a myth that there's a silver bullet, that, you know, we're going to discover hydrogen that's going to be made from thin air and it'll just happen nicely and we'll suddenly be able to, you know, drive hammers um, based on hydrogen and, uh, you know, life will be just as good as it was and we won't have to do anything. The reality is we're going to have to change the way we do things. It's not necessarily so much the quality of life. Just to, just to give you an I mean, if you go back to the Swedish example, imagine if we could wave a wand and all live like Swedes. You know, not a bad choice because they have longer lifespan, they have better health care, and uh, their buildings are warm and they, you know, they live well. So what it does indicate is that you could take two-thirds of all the carbon out of North America, which is humongous, and still live like Swedes. It doesn't mean that you save the world that way, but it does mean that there's huge cultural and design change that needs to happen. But it could. We have a living example of it. So I, I think that the myth that we're being fed is that, uh, I mean, our Canadian government myth is we will discover a way to capture carbon and so we can continue you know, develop the tar sands and creating the largest environmental disaster anywhere. You know, there's no easy way here. It's, we've been living in a way that's just not clever. I'll give you another example. You're in a building now. That building is dumb in a way. It doesn't tell you anything about what it's producing in terms of environmental impact. You have no idea. Uh, you go back to your house or your apartment, it's dumb. By that I mean there's no measurement of what's going on and no reporting back to you, so you have no feedback loop. Uh, picture a car. When you're in a car, you're looking at a speedometer, you have a feedback loop. You see when that needle goes over 120, you're doing a lot of speed, so it tells you to cut back. You know, it, it feeds back what's going on. It shows you what's happening to the oil pressure, to the gas tank, etc. Ron, I want you to explain in, in really easy terms, what is a carbon footprint and why is that so important? What, what is it? How do you calculate it? So when you perform any um, service or build any product or live in a heated building um, or cooled building, you're running, uh, using energy to achieve that cooling or heating or create that product. Typically, that energy comes from burning fossil fuels. Uh, whenever you burn fossil fuels, you're taking carbon that has been stored for years, uh, centuries, deep down in the ground, you know, created eons ago, and you're releasing that in the form of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. So when you burn that material, let's say I'm burning a log of wood or I'm burning some oil, combines with the oxygen in the air and creates carbon dioxide, which is a gas, a colorless gas. That gas actually stays in the atmosphere for a long time and forms a layer around the Earth. And as, as that layer increases in density, you capture more and more of the heat of the Earth. So in some sense, what you're doing is you're taking the Earth out of balance. The carbon that was stored is now being released versus a natural cycle of creating carbon dioxide and releasing it. So every time a tree grows, it absorbs carbon dioxide and uses photosynthesis to create itself. 
create a tree. And then at some point, the leaves drop off that tree, you know, in the fall and winter, and that releases organic matter, which decomposes and actually releases carbon dioxide. So you have a natural cycle in the earth where carbon dioxide is created and actually sequestered or taken out. And once we burn fossil fuels, we're adding to just the releasing of carbon dioxide. Since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, we've released huge amounts of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. And they don't go away. They actually form a layer which actually makes the the earth warmer. Now, your company, ZeroFootprint.net, you invented this to have us go down to a zero footprint to take charge of what we're each individually putting out in the atmosphere in terms of our carbon footprint? For us to get to a point where, where we actually reverse what, uh, what's happened, we'd have to actually take carbon out of the atmosphere. So that would mean even going to a negative footprint. Footprint is really a measure of your environmental impact, and it's actually more extensive than this, but a simple way to think of it is how much carbon your lifestyle produces just by doing all the things you do. What are the influences on that number? You get up in the morning and you eat some cereal, and that cereal was grown somewhere. Someone irrigated it, someone packaged it, transported it to you, and uh, it required energy to get it to you and to grow it. If you had a steak for breakfast, the amount of energy that would have been required, the amount of water, resources would be required would be about in a factor of 100 more than that cereal. So I'll give you a cycle. You have to think of these things in terms of life cycle. So let's imagine a pound of steak or kilo of steak in your supermarket. How did it get there? It started out by someone in the Amazon burning down some rainforest. That releases carbon dioxide that was stored in the trees into the atmosphere. It also gets rid of by a lot of diversity in our animal world because the, those forests actually house insects and animals. That forest then gets turned over a period of five years, say, into grazing or into soybean plantations. The soybeans are grown. It's then shipped to a feed center in Iowa, say, and that Iowa feed is taken to cows who then eat it Cows actually give off methane every time they poop. And, uh, you know, they're releasing methane, which is a more powerful gas, has about 27 times the effect of carbon dioxide for the same volume. And then that steak is then uh, processed. The cow is processed and the steak is produced and then shipped to your supermarket. By the time that one the two-pound steak or one kilo steak gets to you, 15,000 liters of water have been used and um, a huge amount of energy. So uh, it's about, um, just to give you an example, if you were to move from being a heavy meat eater, say eating meat once a day, to a vegan, the amount of carbon you would save is about uh, four tons, and that's the equivalent of taking an SUV and exchanging it for a hybrid. So it's a huge impact, the growing of food. Then what you do is you get in your car, and you drive to work, so you're burning gasoline, and that's giving off carbon. The car actually uh, is made in some way, and you might replace that car every few years, so that's more carbon because it takes energy to produce the car. Uh, you get to your work day, you're, you're in a nicely air-conditioned or heated office. Um, you actually turn on your computer, which actually generates carbon. 
if you download a megabyte of text or, or video, you've just created a lump of coal. You've just burnt a lump of coal. And if you download 100 megabytes, you've burnt a big bag of, uh, say, a, of barbecue coal. And so that's more carbon. So as you use your computer and you do your searching on Google, Google's powering its servers with electricity. Those servers are actually the largest electricity user in California. Uh, and those servers actually, each time you do a search, are creating carbon that goes up into the atmosphere. Almost anything you're doing is creating carbon. Now so, I'm getting nervous, Ron. My stomach's hurting and I'm sweating <laughs> listening to you. So the good news is that... Um, there's many ways to reduce the impact. So let's go, let's take two people, Joe and Mary, and Joe gets up in the morning and has, and let's assume they have the exact same diet in terms of what they eat. So they both eat cereal and they both have a steak for lunch. But in Mary's case, she's eating only organic food grown locally. In the case of Joe, it's, you know, Albertan aged ribeye steak and uh, cereal imported from Chile. Then they come home for dinner and Mary has local fruit and Joe has imported blueberries from Chile and strawberries from you know, Israel. Uh, so if you look at the difference in their intake and, and, and what they may be eating exactly the same kinds of food, but the amount of carbon generated by the, by the different lifestyles they lead is humongous. I mean, there's a wonderful example that I've seen recently where it's Valentine's Day and you're going to give your girlfriend a wonderful present. So you go out and buy flowers, a box of chocolates, and maybe some, you know, some fruit or something like that. And um, in the one case, it all came from locally. And the other case, it you know, was imported. And you, you, in one case, there's something like 300 miles of travel to get that to your girlfriend. And in the other case, it's 35,000. And it's the same stuff, really. Ron, I wanted to look at, you mentioned Sweden earlier. Yeah. What is it that the Swedes are doing that we can incorporate into our lives on, on an individual level? I, I love the idea of more organic, more local. I love the idea of maybe decreasing meat consumptions for people who do still eat meat. What are some very practical things that maybe we've heard of, but you might be able to inspire us to actually execute this time? Let me, let me take a step back because I'll answer this question in two parts. The first thing to note is that more than 40% of all energy in North America is used to operate buildings like your home and the office that you're in. And to put that in perspective, if you took every SUV out of North America just instantaneously, that would be 3% of the energy. So it's, it's a huge quantity. So if you were to improve the efficiency of how you operate your home or your office by, say, 10%, which is, you can imagine would be quite easy, you would do more than taking all SUVs off the road. So if every American actually used 10% less energy to heat and cool their home and 10% less energy to heat and cool their office, just by being clever, wearing a sweater, you know, uh, or wearing lighter clothes in summer, using natural ventilation, and in fact, next time you design a building, designing it better. If you did all that, just 10% is really a small number given where we are. You would do more than if we actually eliminated all SUVs. Incredible. What an amazing statistic. So the, the important thing is that I think what's getting messed up, and you asked a little bit about this, is people are looking at carbon and, and say talking about replacing light bulbs and things. But 
the biggest bang for the buck is in in the way we use energy in in, in our building. So a small reduction there has a very big impact. I live in New York City. Why is it that buildings keep their lights on all night long? When is that going to change, Ron? Well, it's going to change when you charge people a lot for doing that. Or you you know, you get grassroots initiatives. Like, for example, one of the things we tried to start in New York, but uh, it actually says, this was about two years ago, it just needs a driver. But imagine if, imagine the following, you're in a big building downtown New York, and let's say there's three tenants, and they all get their sandwiches. Think of Madison Avenue in Midtown, some big building there, and they all get from like three or four sandwich stores, they all get supplied their lunches. Imagine if every one of those offices suddenly said to the suppliers, I won't accept food from you and I'll find another supplier unless you deliver it in biodegradable packaging without any plastic non-recyclable forks. Guess what would happen? Those suppliers would say, I'm not going to lose the business because they want some dumb packaging. I'm going to do it. And then because they're doing it for one building, they, it's going to be too hard for them to do two different kinds of packaging, one for one building, one for another, so that they'll just move to biodegradable packaging. And then all of a sudden that building is green. So imagine what effect grassroots could have. Now, once you do that, you could think of other things. So I'm a firm believer that if you look at the way our footprint constituted, half of our footprint comes from the way we live and what we do, the examples I gave earlier. And the other half comes from the infrastructure that we inherit. I mean, because I'm a Canadian, I live in Canada and there's a certain infrastructure that the Canadian government has built and I have to live with that whether I like it or not. And so that has a huge footprint and that gets ascribed to me. So you can see that this is both a top-down and bottom-up initiative. You need both government uh, and you know top-down initiatives, but you also need people to change habits. Ron, are there some companies that are role models that have really taken this on as, as their cause and their mission? I think there are a growing number of companies. Um, what I find kind of interesting is even amongst the companies that haven't fully taken this on as their mission, it's become quite a sort of water cooler kind of discussion thing, you know, what I did yesterday to improve the environment in my office. So I was at an office in Toronto recently where totally non-green organization and living in a non-green building, but they decided they were going to eliminate plastic water bottles. turns out that they were using 15,000 plastic water bottles a year. Now, I can name a very large company in Silicon Valley that I don't want to name that uses that amount of plastic water bottles a day. It's about to change. So even though these things are symbolic, they, they carry huge cultural value. When someone becomes aware that plastic is actually really damaging, it has a huge effect. So, for example, Whole Foods in our, in our neighborhood just says, no more plastic. And there's no more plastic. So then the neighborhood supermarkets outdo them and said no more plastic and only, I don't know, biodegradable stuff. I think there's a real snowballing effect that's occurring. There are companies that have gone the whole way. I really like what I see with companies like Walmart that everybody loves to hate. But, you know, Walmart is such a huge country in and of itself that when Walmart decides that its packaging has to be 30% lighter, it has a huge impact on its 60,000 suppliers who then are not going to create special packaging just for Walmart. They'll apply that in their networks and so on. So I, I, that's what we started Zero Footprint to do was really to provide a software platform that would enable people to do this easily. So if people go to the website, what will they find? I mean, 
It's a young and evolving website, but what they'll find is a marketplace of about 10,000 companies that are listed worldwide and a similar number of events and a calendar that they can work with and a news feed. But what's, what's most important is it's all built around a carbon calculator and a social network that enables people to measure their impact as well as connect with other people who, who want to reduce their impact. When I was preparing some of the questions to ask you, a lot of friends of mine, their reaction was this. Cities, companies, they're not really doing what they should be doing, and my individual actions aren't really going to matter. And that was a little bit of why mass market consciousness hasn't sort of come up to speed with the need and the urgency, because it does happen at a business level, a company level, a city level, and, and eventually also laws. What do you tell people that haven't quite taken this on themselves? Well, you know, I mean, if you imagine, imagine this, you work for IBM and one day you walk in and they've changed all the light bulbs, but it's still light. It doesn't really affect your cultural behavior. But imagine if you were part of a group in IBM that banded together with all the other people of like mine and said, we're all interested in solar and there might be another group that's interested in carpooling or whatever. And you had ownership in the actions that you took that would then affect the way you behaved at home as well. So I think that if you just had simply top-down initiatives, it wouldn't do much. I think if you look at the... Look, there's another disconnect in the world. If you look at all the polls, they would say something very interesting. Imagine if I told you that the polls say that 70% to 80% of United States citizens think of themselves as environmentalists. You'd kind of choke. You'd say, what? But it's true. And and there's a huge disconnect uh, in the fact in the way they behave. So I think a lot of it has to do with making it very much part of the daily routine. If you go to Walmart and Walmart's adopted light packaging and recycling and the like, you'll sort of be incorporating that whether you like it or not. But it'll become so easy for you, so you'll be green just because it's easy. Ron, How is it is it a myth that it's expensive to go green? Is it a myth that buying organic, buying local, changing things, converting different fuels and energy, does it cost more money or, or not eventually? It's not, a, it's not a myth. In other words, if I told you, um, if you don't know what the different bang for the buck would be in different actions you might take. So, for example, if I say put in a light bulb, you say, okay, but it costs 16 bucks for this little light bulb. And you're going to say to me, well, but that takes out 75% of the carbon. I'd say, well, but it's still a lot of money. Or if I tell you putting ground source heating and cooling in your house, you say, but that's $20,000. And I'd say, but that would take out all this carbon and eventually it'll pay itself back. The problem is this, is that there's a part of what we could do that would not cost anything. And I, I have to qualify that in that it over a period of time would not cost anything. And there's another part that would cost something. So, for example, if you wanted to put solar panels on your house in a state that didn't subsidize solar, there would be a net cost. You'd be paying more for electricity than you could otherwise pay. But if you wanted to put ground source heating and cooling into your house, uh, you would have an initial capital outlay, but you would ultimately be paying much less and you'd be hedged against oil prices. So the big problem in the green world today is that financial institutions and the capital markets haven't come to bear on green. 
So, for example, if the benefits that would accrue to me by being green could be used to pay for the capital I'd need to become green today, then I could do that in some cases without spending any money. Ron, is one of the ways to do that to encourage people to invest in green stocks and alternative fuels and actually yeah. start shifting money towards those? That's right, because the, the, the capital markets could do a tremendous amount for greening. Today, if, you want to, if you're a city and you want to raise a bond, you, you can raise a bond. And what's a bond? The bond gets you, know, you capital in your bank today to do stuff by giving away future cash flows to the bond holder. If you could do the same for green, that would have a huge effect. And in some cases, the benefits that would accrue to you are so great that they outweigh the costs over a period. And so that if the capital markets used that, they could actually eliminate the... You could walk up to someone and say, I will retrofit your house with geothermal at no cost to you. And... um, what's called the cost curve of carbon. There's some things we do that have a payback. And the payback takes some time. In some cases, it's longer than others. But when you're on that side of the cost curve, so that you, the earth wins, you win, everybody wins if they did this, there are certain things you can do that fit in that category, and there's certain things that you can do that don't. So, for example, solar panels. If you lived in New Jersey, the subsidy for solar is so great that it pays you to put solar in. If you lived in Germany, the subsidy is so great that it pays you. So imagine Germany with almost no sun is the largest installer of solar in the world. And it's just because they've created the right subsidy. So that's where the bottom-up and top-down come together. If the government gets rid of that additional cost and, and actually accrues a benefit because of it, for example, what's happened in Germany, they've suddenly become a very big solar industry. So their subsidies actually being paid back to Germany in spades. Ron, I wanted to uh, just summarize, if you could, for people who are listening to this, maybe on Earth Day, maybe later, what are the three, four, five most important things an individual can do as they start on the first three days of being more green, reducing their carbon footprint? I think the very first thing to do is to uh, look at the way you heat and cool your house and see what you can do to reduce that by any amount. In certain jurisdictions, for example in Ontario, by running your your washing machines and dryers, where you, you have discretion at certain times of the day, for example at night, when electricity is both cheap and the carbon is low, just by shifting your load, that's another way in which you can do it, shifting the way you use electricity and how much you use. Uh, and then I would say that the risk comes to dealing with issues where, like, for example, most people fly in North America, a lot of people fly. And flying is one of those cases where there's very little you can do because there isn't, other than try to reduce your flying a little, but to some degree you won't reduce it altogether. Then there's, you can get into offsetting that. So I think that the idea is to slowly hack away at your footprint and reduce it in a measurable fashion. So start one by measuring it, two by picking the the areas where you have the biggest impact and the biggest impact would be flying and your home. And uh, three, buying more cleverly. 
and less. There's a very simple, there's a very simple way to reduce your footprint. That is to consume less. Right. Ron, the way we end all our interviews here at Change Nation is to ask the same three questions to all of our experts and guests. They're all about the subject of change. Okay. So here they are. The first one is, what is the belief that you personally go to during times of change? Uh, I guess I'm a rational guy, so I, I always try to do stuff that's scientifically based. One of the big things that's ignored today, and when you look at the science, comes through very clearly, is that population explosion is one of the biggest challenges for reducing carbon emissions, and yet we don't talk about that. So, for example, there's things that we can do to reduce the number of people born, you know, by, by just educating women, for example, reduce the amount of births that would cost very little to our societies and have a huge impact on carbon. And yet we talk about other stuff which is much more expensive than building windmills, for example. Ron, I guess my question on a personal level if you were in a time of change in your life, personally, professionally, financially, health-wise, what is the belief that keeps you strong and keeps you going during those times of transition? I'd say it's the connections to other humans. Wonderful. Here's the second one. Fill in the sentence, the best thing about change is... The best thing about change is it forces us out of our box. What is the best change that you've ever made? The best changes I've ever made are, are going into completely new fields where I can apply the stuff I've learned in the field I've learned to those new fields. So, for example, in the case of green, it's applying financial engineering and good software to the world of green. And if you look around, there's not a lot of that. Ron, you've certainly gone through your, your share of professional changes and we're thankful for it. I'm thankful that you have shared your tips and insights and we honor what you're doing. So thank you. Thank you. For more information on Ron and his wonderful work, please visit his website, zerofootprint.net and go ahead and buy his book as well, Everything You Wanted to Know About Offsetting But We're Afraid to Ask. You've been listening to Change Nation, a show from the first 30 days more interviews with experts on all types of changes, please visit us at first30days.com. Thanks for listening to Change Nation from the first 30 days. Please visit us on iTunes in the Society and Culture podcast section under Philosophy. Remember to take time to leave us feedback about the show. We'd love to know what you think. Change Nation is a production of the First 30 Days Incorporated. Copyright 2008. All rights reserved. <laughs>